In this lecture on culture and personality, what we're going to examine is the relationship between the characteristics of our groups, our cultures, and the characteristics that we have as individuals. In essence, this is a set of questions about the relationship between the domains of anthropology on one hand and psychology at the other. Uh, we can see that what this reflects is the idea that our personality, our individual traits, are in part shaped by the collective levels. We'll see that these capacities to have the collective shape the individual are in part a function of certain psychosocial capacities, the ability to represent ourselves as individuals and in relationship to the generalized other, the idea that there are expectations that members of society in general have about our behavior and our ability to incorporate those expectations into what we expect of ourselves we'll see that these personality adaptations produced by culture have two primary forces that generate them. A primary socialization that is largely generated within the context of our families and a secondary socialization that comes from the influences of other people and groups in society. These issues of personality adaptations have been addressed within psychology in terms of the notions of life cycle development. How does one go through the stages of life? Psychology has tended to emphasize that these stages are based in biology. Anthropology has raised questions regarding the extent to which these really reflect biological imperatives as opposed to cultural priorities. And we will look at this at context of Freud's psychosexual stages. He thought that these were biologically driven stages of development. Looking at them in cross-cultural perspective leads us to conclude that they may actually reflect a set of cultural preferences rather than anything innate to human biology. We will once again look at this idea of the relationship between personality and culture in the context of what's been called the psychocultural model a model that entertains a wide variety of influences, including history, environment, the cultural system, the family dynamics, the child-rearing environment, secondary socialization, and even the projective systems, the mythologies and values of the culture in terms of shaping behavior. We'll examine this by looking at some of the studies that have indicated a relationship between subsistence, how you get your food, and preferred personality patterns. We'll look at how different family dynamics can instill different attitudes about what's important in children and child-rearing practices. And we'll focus in upon a particular aspect of secondary socialization, initiation rites associated with the puberty slash adult transition, and look at how societies that have what have been considered extremely violent and painful initiation rites fall into a certain set of societies in terms of their characteristics. And we'll try to understand how factors as diverse as nutrition and mother-child bonding and husband-wife relationships and the broader dynamics of a society may produce a particular need for the adjustment of adult personality. In essence, we will see that what we can call expressive culture, myth, art, drama, various forms of artistic manifestations can be seen as reflective of human identity. Indeed, this will be one of the primary models that we will see has been used in the culture and personality studies to understand how it is that culture is related to our individual characteristics. We will see that it's not just a function of how we are influenced in our development by the environment and our history and our family and our friends and our schools, but also the models that are held up for us to emulate the ideals that we have in terms of what it is that we should try to do. When we look at these understandings of the causes of human behavior, we'll see that anthropology and psychology have taken somewhat different approaches. Anthropology has emphasized the importance of a cross-cultural approach, while psychology has typically been monocultural. It studied people in one culture, North America, and presume that this can help us understand something about what's true of human beings everywhere. Anthropologists raise questions about these laws of human nature derived from psychology. 
questions based upon issues of the representativeness of the sample. Do the motivations and dynamics of college freshmen and sophomores, the primary subjects in psychological studies, reflect a universal dynamic or a culturally specific one? Can North American freshmen and sophomores be used to fairly represent the cross-cultural variation that we find in human psychology? Anthropologists would insist that cross-cultural perspectives are necessary for verifying any laws or theories that come out of any one specific culture. When we look at these relationships between culture and psychological processes, we see that anthropologists have emphasized the model in which the primary relations of life, work in particular, but also how it is that we organize our families, are some of the most important determinants of these secondary relations manifested in personality, in myth, and in indigenous psychologies. So anthropologists don't doubt that there are cross-cultural universals of human development. What we emphasize is the importance of using a cross-cultural approach in order to be able to distinguish the universals from the culturally specifics. One of the broad universal features that we understand about human development is that personality and culture are in a kind of biocultural interaction. On one hand, personality is a learning capacity. And this is what makes culture possible. If we didn't have certain kinds of memory systems and motivational aspects and drives, we wouldn't acquire culture. On the other hand, what personality develops within is always a cultural framework. So in a very real sense, you can't have personality without culture. One of the ways of looking at this is to see that personality as a set of biological capacities of the human species always are present in humans and provide the basis for acquiring culture. Apart from those who are mentally defective or physically defective, every human being has the capacity to acquire culture. That cultural context is a necessary part of that development and it provides the context that shapes our biological capacities, our memories, our drives, our motivations, etc. So in essence, while we can distinguish personality and culture as the individual and the collective influences, in a very real sense, they don't exist without the other. That we don't have a ability to develop our personalities without the cultural context to shape it, and the personality doesn't develop unless there is a cultural context to give content to our biological universals. These ideas have been developed within anthropology in terms of the notion that culture and personality are in any given group so coterminous as to justify the idea of a group personality, a particular configuration or style of evaluating the world, thinking about it, reacting to it, feeling, expressing our emotions that in essence there are culturally normative ways of taking our biological potentials for emotion, behavior and cognition, and shaping them in ways that are appropriate within our given cultural context, producing similarities within a group. Within that context, we recognize that there are certain biological factors that are a necessary part of these capabilities, a kind of indigenous psychology that all humans have. We can see an indigenous psychology is sort of a folk psychology, a sense that humans are driven by internal motivations and by social motivations. An idea that humans, independent of their individual differences, may nonetheless be similar in terms of the roles that they adopt and the particular behaviors that they exhibit. So one of the underlying biological capacities that human beings have is to take what we see in the world about us and say, you know, I want to be like that too. This is my model for being a human being. So this idea of the generalized other, the expectations that others in society have about our behavior, plays an important role in what's called role playing. Understanding what your position is in life, understanding what's associated with that position in terms of behaviors and expression, and then incorporating those into how we view ourselves. And how is it that these others in our environment influence ourselves and our development? 
Well, this reflects a variety of different kinds of adaptations that our personalities necessarily make to the broader influences that are provided by our society and our families. In essence, we can see that our personalities make four major adaptations, according to the psychological anthropologist Levine. He says we need to adapt to our environment, the physical as well as social, and that different kinds of environments will demand different kinds of adaptations. Whatever our biology gives us as drives and needs and motivations is going to be shaped through the primary socialization influences that come, and most importantly, from our family systems. We are also influenced by a variety of other societal factors, peer groups, military, schools, sports teams, religion, that may reinforce, or as we will see in later examples, override some of those earlier influences. And ultimately, we do, as human beings, experience a need to engage in a set of adaptations towards some notion of a group personality. At a very deep level, we all want to be like Mike. We all want to be respected and esteemed. And what that means is that we have some innate tendencies to want to bring our behavior into accord with the group. Now, you may ask, what about people who try to be different? You know, punks and hippies. Well, you got to realize that they have just picked another group to orient to. They're not abandoning the need to orient the individual self towards the group. They've just picked a specific subculture for that orientation. How is it that we end up behaving in ways that are consistent with our group expectations? Well, the most important influences come within the family system. Given that we are mammals, that we're in most social contexts dependent upon lactation for survival, that this is conducive to bonding, humans everywhere develop within the context of their family the basic drives that are part of our human nature. But those basic drives may be influenced in very different ways. For instance, uh, we as mammals all have a need to be dependent upon others. And as mammals, we are all, in essence, uh, destined to bond with the significant others in our environment. But cultures differ considerably in terms of how much dependence, how much bonding, for how long, what's healthy, what's excessive. And indeed, if we look cross-culturally, what one culture may see as a normal, healthy development in a child, another may view as being an excessive dependence or excessive independence of the family. The secondary socialization comes from the wider society, and in our society today, things such as daycare centers and schools are probably the most important institutional influences. Uh, for some people, it will be their churches, but virtually for all humans, it becomes our peers. While we often think of the family as the most important socialization influence, by the time we've hit first grade, or maybe even by the time we set off for the infant toddler center, we have begun to enter into a network of peer relations in which what our friends think is far more important than what our parents think. And this once again reflects this tendency of human beings to want to be like the people around us, the people that we hang out with, the people that do things that we do. So in a very real sense, we become like members of our group because socialization provides for personality integration. In this sense, what I'm talking about is taking our biological capacities, our desires to be like others, to bond with them, to have friendships, to receive esteem, and it's developed in a very specific cultural setting. Culture provides the content for these underlying biological universals. And socialization also provides a kind of personality integration between the influences of the primary socialization system, what happens in the family, and what's demanded in the broader society. While some societies have a lot of overlap or consistency between primary and secondary socialization, uh, in some societies there are radical differences between what it means to be a good child and what it means to be a good adult. And sometimes the dynamics created in childhood have to be broken and overridden by a new set of influences that produce a personality dynamic appropriate for functioning in adult life. 
So socialization can provide a personality integration by linking what happened in our primary socialization experiences with what's required in the broader society. How does this happen? I think the, the broadest answer is that it happened through socialization agents. The people that we're exposed to, beginning with our family, our parents, our brothers and sisters, other kin, extending to peers, to teachers, and to others. That we have a variety of set of influences that are not only telling us what to do or not to do, reinforcing one form of behavior or another, but they also provide a variety of social and self-models. One of the things that we know about human beings is that we are powerfully influenced by the models that we see in the world about us. And these models may exemplify certain kinds of personality characteristics or certain kinds of behaviors or other dispositions. But we as human beings are very powerfully influenced by those models. That's why our parents are often concerned about who do you hang out with? Because we recognize that we will become like those that we hang out with. Um, we also know that these self-models may be internalized through a variety of psychological processes and dynamics. Uh, and some of these dynamics may at one level be counterintuitive. For instance, one of the things that has been noted about abusive parents is that most abusive parents were abused as children. The idea is that as a child, they internalized the idea that they wanted to be like this person that was abusing them. Why, you might think, why would you want to be like an abuser? Well, maybe the simplest answer is, if you were, they wouldn't be abusing you. If you were a dominant animal, you wouldn't be dominated by another animal. So we have these innate tendencies as human beings to internalize the models that we see from the world around us. For instance, in World War II and the uh, prison camps for uh, Jewish people, there were well-recognized phenomena of Jewish prisoners imitating the Nazi guards in terms of the goose step and other forms of behavior, speech patterns, etc. Why would they want to be like the people that abused and tortured them? Well, if they were, they wouldn't be victims in this situation. So we have this innate tendency to not only incorporate what we see in the world about us, but to learn a lot about what's expected of us in life through this category of expressive culture, through music and song and drama and enactments and dance, models of human behavior are being provided through religion, through mythology. We get some notion of what it is to be a human being. And these kinds of influences may be seen as evoking a set of innate potentials. Um, for instance, I recall as a young adolescent listening to music on uh, the radio and wanting to be in love. It hadn't occurred to me before that I wanted to be in love, but listening to these songs, it's like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And something that was a latent potential gets evoked by a set of models of emotional attachment that's expressed through music. So we're socialized in lots of different ways by what we are exposed to in the environment. And it depends upon our ability as human beings to incorporate certain kinds of influences into ourself. These include, in particular, identification, internalization, imitation, social context influences, and ultimately, self-socialization. Identification is a little girl saying, I want to be like mommy, because mommy gets nice hats and purses and pretty clothing, and everybody likes her. I want to be like mommy. As she develops, she will quit saying that she wants to be like mommy and she'll go to the closet and she'll get mommy's shoes and hat out and put them on and she'll clomp around the house saying, I'm mommy. She no longer wants to be like mommy. She's internalized that model. That's who she is. We also learn to do certain things through imitation, through social modeling. And lots of different studies have illustrate how powerful social models are. For instance, some of the classic studies done by Bandura, uh, he would have children uh, watching videos. And in one of the videos, for instance, there would be somebody using a bat to whack on a dummy, a little 
plastic blow-up dummy. When you put the kids in the room, well, those that saw that video are looking for the bat and looking for the dummy. They saw somebody do it. They want to go do it themselves. doesn't take a physical actor present to instill these kinds of desires. I remember when my son was only about two years old, he's watching Sesame Street and watches somebody pull out a bunch of drawers to climb up on a countertop. I'm sitting on the sofa working on my dissertation, watching him, he's watching TV, that's fine. And all of a sudden I hear this laughing sound from the kitchen. Well, what's he up to? I go in the kitchen, the drawers are pulled out, he's up on the countertop. <laughs> he's just laughing away. He says, I can do this too. You know, somebody did it on TV, bingo, I think I can go do the same thing. So what we see modeled in our life, it's an important set of influences on what kind of behaviors we develop. And social context is part of that. Uh, we learn to behave in certain ways depending on the setting in which we are in. And this is particularly illustrated in uh, what we might call moral behavior. Children, for instance, will make very different choices depending on who they are with. Some social settings, for instance, peers, lead to less moral decisions than other social settings, like being with mommy and daddy or being in Sunday school. So the social context, in very subtle ways, influences what we think is appropriate. Uh, some of the most interesting studies on this regard have to do with the behavior of prisoners of war. If you ask American soldiers, will you collaborate with the enemy if you're captured? No, sir! You know, do you have any doubt about this? No, sir! You know, they're not going to collaborate with the enemy. Well, during the Korean conflict, at least 80% of all the American POWs violated the military code of honor in collaborating with the enemy. What they thought was going to be their behavior in one context, being lectured by the sergeant, didn't hold up in another context where someone says, you like a nice steak? Smell it? You want that or you want to eat grubs again tonight? You know? Would you like the steak? Okay, just say a few things about how nice we are to you. Oh yeah, these guys are great. Give me the steak, you know? Different social context, different set of behaviors. Ultimately, because we are complex symbolic creatures, we are able to socialize ourselves. We can choose our ideal others. We begin to engage in a kind of phenomenon in which we select the role models, an ideal self that we want to be, and we model ourselves on the behavior of those people that we see as being successful. So one of the things that human beings engage in is a process of social negotiation about who we're going to be based upon the ideas that we're exposed to in the world around us. In many traditional societies, children were not sort of required to become one kind of person or another. They weren't strictly disciplined. They were allowed to pick the models that they wanted. There were a limited number of them, and they were all good for their culture. Today, we may not be so um, benefited by the models that are available in our society. Children today may be self-socializing by what they see on TV. There's a well-established relationship between the amount of violence that a child sees on TV and their own violent behaviors. So today we're exposed to lots of different models, and one of the concerns parents often have is, what will my child be exposed to? What will they be told is part of the normal behavior in society? a recognition that children will behave in ways that are not just related to the reward system, but they may want to be like Mike or a gangster or somebody else. In spite of these cultural specifics to the development of human beings, uh, there are a lot of theories out there that say human development has a set of constant features. Everybody everywhere goes through the same stages. The psychologist Sigmund Freud suggested this in his theories about the stages of psychosexual development. He thought underlying biological slash sexual energies that he called libidinal energies were the motivating factors in how humans developed. He laid out what he thought were five universal stages, the oral, anal, genital, latency, and puberty stages that he thought basically involved in the case of the oral one, the first year of life, anal through age two, genital, a sexual stage, an awakening of the sexual capacity of the human being at age three or four, a latency period, 
in which sexuality disappears, is repressed at age five, remaining repressed up until the point of puberty. Well, is this true? The oral stage probably is. Children everywhere begin with a fixation on the mouth, mother's breast or the bottle. It's the source of sustenance and enjoyment. But what about the anal stage? Does concern with sphincter control dominate children's lives everywhere? Well, in the Western world, we want to toilet train children between the ages of one and two normally. It's a normal time for them to develop this. But not all cultures emphasize this. In some cases, what we find is not toilet training of infants, but toilet training of mothers. Mothers learn when it is that their infants need to go to the toilet, and they take them to the right place. They don't toilet train their children. They just learn to pay attention to their gurgling sounds and perhaps a few little farts that say, this kid needs to go. Get him out of this rebosa <laughs> off of my body. Take the kid somewhere where they can poop appropriately. And eventually the kid learns this. But it's not part of a training process like it is in our culture. Genital phase. Freud said that little children everywhere about the age of three or four become sexual beings. And according to Freud's theory, the little boys want to have sex with mommy. The little girls want to have sex with daddy. So Freud really conflated two things here. One was the question of whether or not sexuality emerges at this point in life. The other was the question of what's the focus of sexual desires. I would think that the cross-cultural literature probably bears out the idea that human beings become sexual very early. It also bears out the notion that cultures differ dramatically in how they respond to this. You know, if your parents heard that you were having sex at four or five years old, they would probably have totally freaked out. You know? In some cultures, it's totally normal. Some cultures, mothers even masturbate their babies to quiet them down. Gives them something else to focus on. Not thought of sexual abuse or incest. It's just a normal thing. But in some cultures, you know, don't put that hand down there. You know, we diaper kids up so they can't easily play with themselves. If they do, we tell them it's bad. And they do begin to lose some sexual interest. Freud thought that this latency period was a normal outcome of what he called the Oedipal and Electra complex. Oedipal referring to boys, Electra to girls. Freud focused most on the Oedipal complex, which he saw as being the natural desire of a little boy to want to have sex with his mother. He found this reported in dreams. He found it reported in you know, psychotherapy. He found it in mythology. His idea was that that attraction was natural, but that little children were smart enough to figure out, the little boy was able to figure out, you know, daddy's not going to be too happy about this. And fear of dad as this great big dominant being led to repression. And when we repress things that we want, then we become angry and aggressive towards those figures that force that repression. This was Freud's theory. He proposed it was universal. Anthropologist Malinowski, doing his work in the Trobriand Islands, came to a different conclusion. He concluded that there was no Oedipal complex. And he pointed out that in the Trobriand Islands, there didn't seem to be this anger and aggression between boys and their fathers. He took this as proof that the Oedipal complex was not universal and that it didn't really have anything to do with biology of sex or sexual desire because their fathers were having sex with their mothers, but this was not an issue for the little boys. He did find something like the Oedipal complex in the Trobrian society, and it was focused on the maternal uncle as we'll see when we look at kinship, in societies that have matrilocal residents, a typical pattern is one in which husband and wives don't live together. Women and their kin live together. So a woman lives with her sisters, her daughters, her sons, and all of her female kin's children. So the important figure in the household is not anybody's father in the household. No fathers live there under the Trobrian model. Instead, mothers, brothers, and mothers' sons. These are the power figures in the group. 
these are the people that little boys come to resent because these are the guys that boss them around and tell them what to do. So Malinowski's consideration of the Oedipal complex cross-culturally is an important example about why the cross-cultural method is important in understanding human behavior. If we had looked at this in just one cultural context, we would not have been able to sort out whether it had to do with the role of father as consort or the role of father as disciplinarian. The cross-culture method allows us to see that it's not dad having sex with mom that makes little boys aggressive towards father. It has to do with who bosses them around and tells them what to do. Another important issue raised by Freud's theory was the idea of puberty transition. He thought that puberty was a normal part of human development. It is. And in most cases, this has been conflated with adolescence, a period of time in which a biologically reproductive member of the species is not allowed to assume adult status. Much of anthropology is focused on the question of, is this adolescent transition period, conflict between the growing youth and their parents, universal, part of biology, or is it cultural? When we look at it cross-culturally, we see that there is important reasons to consider it as a culturally created phenomenon. Margaret Mead had suggested this in her early research, and while some of her conclusions have been called into question, it is clear that there are dramatic differences cross-culturally in the manifestations of adolescence. Indeed, studies of the history of American culture illustrate how adolescence emerged. It was the conflation of several factors, things such as child labor laws. You know, up until the latter part of the 19th century, you had little kids working in factories 12 and 16 hours a day. Child labor laws combined with mandatory schooling laws. Everybody up to a certain age has to go to school. All of a sudden created this period of life in which you couldn't work and you had to do something else, go to school. So we can see in the history of American society that adolescence was created as a social process. And there's a very interesting dynamic to it that's beyond what I can talk about here. But it raises questions about why is adolescence a problematic period of life in American society when it's not in other societies. In other societies, kids know what they have to do to become adults. You, know, you begin to behave in certain ways. You, know, you start chopping firewood or hauling water or hunting with your dad. What do you have to do to become an adult in our society is not so clear. You can be emancipated by your parents, but you may not be able to drink or vote. You may get a job, but you're not allowed to get married. Uh, there really is, in a very substantial sense, only about one thing that you can do in American society to assure that as an adolescent you will be treated as an adult. You kill somebody. And then the court system will decide that you should be treated as an adult. But other than that, you know, there's no surefire way of being an adult in American society. You can be 24 years old, living with your parents, not having a job, not being married, and people may wonder if you're really an adult or not, even though you can drink and go die for your country. So the American problem has to do with how do we engage in this identity transformation? We don't have these clear rights of transition. We used to. The Sweet 16 ball used to be viewed as a kind of adult coming out. And some cultures still have clear initiation rights. Mexican culture, they have the quinceanera, the 15th birthday. Traditionally, a girl didn't date before she was 15. After 15, she had a great big party, and she was expected to get married within a year or so. In Jewish culture, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah might be viewed as a similar kind of adult transition ceremony. But we as North American mainstream culture don't have these clear rites of passage that allow us to become adults. So this calls into question whether or not we can say that there is a universal aspect to adolescence. Even puberty itself might be called into question as a universal feature of human life. Not that it doesn't happen, for instance, in the case of uh, first menses for females, but we know that this may range from as early as eight years of age to as late as the early 20s. An eight-year-old girl having her first period is not the same thing as a 16-year-old girl having her first period 
not the same as a 22-year-old sexually experienced woman having her first period. So even biology may take on dramatically different implications in different cultural contexts. Nonetheless, we still have within the context of Western psychology the notion that there are universal human life stages. Are these biology or are these culture? I list here some of the typical stages that you will find if you look at a developmental psychology text. And most of them that I have looked at have clearly laid out the argument that biology is what forces you from one stage to the next. Well, there's another system of organization that comes from the Ainu, an indigenous group in northern Japan. They recognize six stages of human development, beginning with the first one they call a lump of dung. They literally feces. They just refer to the child as a little pile of feces. When the child reaches the second stage of life called inflates its cheeks, it can do this. Well, now they give it a name. Is this a physiological milestone in human development? It is. It reflects a degree of lung capacity, control of the mouth, coordination between the mouth and the lungs. Now, why don't we have this phase in our developmental sequences? Well, we can say that that physiological development is not important to us. In people where infant mortality is very high, and where, for instance, names that you give to children have to be expunged from your vocabulary when they die, you don't mention the dead, but you don't want to waste a name on somebody who might not live. And if you think the spirits are one of the major reasons that children die, they get carried off by the spirits, well, you don't want to refer to this sweet little darling baby because the spirits will hear you and they'll come. So you call it a lump of dung so they don't pay any attention. And when it has the capacity to blow out its cheeks, you give it a name, call it a person. So we could pick any of these phases of Ainu development and find a physiological basis. But did physiology cause this stage? Well, I think we would be forced to conclude that physiology proceeds on its own developmental sequences. And cultures pick out which physiological features are important to them and focus on those. But it's not the physiological features that cause the stages to occur. Rather, stages are imposed upon a lot of continuities in human development, depending upon what's important in a particular culture. What this leads us to is a recognition that to understand how it is that humans develop, how we become the kinds of adults we are, requires a complex framework. And John and Beatrice Whiting have outlined what they call the psychocultural model that was designed to provide a framework for thinking about these diverse influences. Within their framework are innate capacities there in the middle that give rise to our childhood personalities are a reflection of a lot of different influences, including the environment, our history, our cultural systems, and the specific dynamics that are part of how we are raised as children. These dynamics give rise to a childhood personality that may be dramatically transformed or remain constant across our lives. In some cultures, seven-year-old children are being taught to behave like adults, and they do gender-appropriate behaviors. In other cultures, we tell them, you know, you can't do that, you're a child. You know, you gotta be an adult before you do those things. And so the adult model may not be imposed for another 10 or 15 years. However, in some cultures, we find that important changes in socialization occur at a particular transition, for instance, pubertal. That then gives rise to the adult personality. And that adult personality may produce a particular way of viewing the world, a mythology, a religion, art, expressive culture, etc. In the way I've laid out this model and in the way the Whitings originally proposed it, they sort of saw this as a chain of events, one thing influencing the other. However, they also pointed out that virtually any aspect of this model can act upon any other one. The adult personality certainly influences childhood personality, directly or indirectly. The environment can influence both how adults and children behave. And their projective systems are not only the outcome 
of adult personalities, but they may be input into personality formation. For instance, when we tell stories to our children, do they have a moral message? When we tell stories to our children, do they inculcate gender roles? You know, when we tell you know, um, religious themes, teach our children religion, how does this influence our child-rearing environments? So it's not just that things move this way through the model, but there's literally feedback loops to any other level. What this leads us to is two things. One, a recognition that there are a variety of different influences that can shape both childhood and adult personality. And two, a recognition that what those personalities are can be understood within a variety of different kinds of influences and constraints that come from not only the culture itself, but the broader environment within which the culture operates. So we'll look at how some of these relationships have been understood within anthropology. For instance, relationships between subsistence and personality. What has been noted is that people in different kinds of cultures have different ideals regarding how it is that children should behave. Hunter-gatherers tend to stress things like self-reliance and independence, individual initiative, self-assertion. This contrasts dramatically, for instance, with agricultural societies that tend to emphasize things like compliance and obedience and responsibility. Why might there be such dramatic differences? Well, it probably can be viewed as a direct effect of work patterns. If you're a hunter, you've got to do different things to be successful than if you're an agriculturalist. If you plant crops and grandfather says, you know, you wait till, you know, the winter feast and you count forward 25 days and you begin a three-week cycle of ceremonies and then you plant the seeds, you may say, well, why have a ceremony? Why don't we just go plant the seeds? Well, you decide to disobey grandfather's advice and plant right after the winter ceremony, your seeds probably aren't going to grow. Things don't grow in January, and even if it's warm, there may not be any rain. So agriculturalists have a system that works where they live. Grandfather's knowledge is very relevant. If you obey what he has to say, you comply with traditions, you're likely to be a good farmer. But what if you're a hunter and your brother-in-law comes back to camp with a deer that he's carrying? You want a deer too. If you ask him, where did you kill that deer? And he tells you, does it make sense to go hunt there tomorrow? Might make sense to you, but most hunters know that place is spooked. There's blood all over the place now. Those deer aren't coming anywhere near it for a while. You can't conform to what your brother-in-law did. You can't just repeat the patterns of what somebody else did. The same for a woman. Your sister comes back to camp with a basket full of berries. Where did you get those? Well, she can tell you, but if she picked all the berries that were ripe today, there's not going to be many ripe berries tomorrow. You can't do what she did. You've got to engage in an independent initiative. Do something different. Do something that's more likely to bring you success than complying with what somebody else did. So we can see that hunting and gathering and agriculture may inculcate very different kinds of attitudes towards personality and being in the world. And in the text you can read about how pastoral societies may be able to get away with inculcating aggressive tendencies in ways that would never work in an agricultural society. There's also a widespread recognition in psychological anthropology that there's a relationship between subsistence patterns and what kinds of relationships parents uh, establish with their children. We might contrast this as an acceptance versus rejection dichotomy. Do parents unconditionally accept children and give them what they want? What we in our society might say, spoiling them rotten. Or do we tell children, nope, you don't get to eat now, you wait till dinner time. You know, let them cry it out of their system, you know, it'll be okay, they'll get over it. Well, it turns out that these differences in acceptance rejection are also predicted by subsistence patterns. Hunter-gatherers tend to manifest an unconditional acceptance of children, whereas other subsistence patterns vary widely. Why is this the case? Well, developmental psychology tells us that children that are, in essence, spoiled, given everything they want, develop very independent personalities. 
They develop a, a powerful attachment to the provider figures. They feel confident about life. They get whatever they want. And they go forward in life with this sense of confidence. Children that are restricted and don't get this kind of unconditional acceptance, they become much more dependent, insecurely attached. So once again, we may find that cultures were selected for in terms of whether or not they unconditionally accepted their children and spoiled them at the hunter-gatherer level, because if they did, the children were more likely to develop the kind of independent, self-reliant, assertive personalities that was important for hunter-gatherer survival. There are lots of different ways in which culture interacts with the socialization process in ways that are immediately apparent in child personality. Some of the classic studies contrasting American and Japanese mothers found a dramatic contrast. American mothers talked to their babies, played with them, positioned them, encouraged them to do things, encouraged them to vocalize. Japanese mothers, when a child woke up, would be more likely to soothe and quiet the child, try to put it back to sleep, rock it into passivity. Within the first weeks of life, American babies were more active, engaged in more active play, vocalized more, etc. Japanese babies were much more passive. Of course, this not only reflected the individual orientations of the mother, but some have speculated may also reflect the greater individual versus collective orientations of the American versus Japanese society. American mothers were preparing their infants to be self-assertive and to go out and do things in the world. Japanese mothers were preparing their babies to fit in, to be quiet, to accept the situation. Family structures also affect how children are raised. For instance, one of the well-known findings is a relationship between family size and the suppression of aggression. Children who are reared in very small families with few siblings tend to be far more aggressive than children who are raised in large families with lots of children. Why? Well, you basically don't want a lot of kids fighting. If you have a lot of kids around, you know, saying no fighting, it becomes pretty important to maintaining tranquility. You just got one kid. If they're fighting, they're fighting with the neighbor kid. So if it gets out of hand, you send the neighbor kid home. So the size of the family can affect how it is that aggression is managed. Or take a widely recognized psychological development in children called separation anxiety. Newborn infant doesn't care whether mom picks it up or the aunt or the nurse or dad. And for months into the child's life, somewhere as far as six or eight months, children don't experience a dramatic difference in their attachment to different figures. And they don't feel particularly anxious when mom puts them down on the bed and leaves. But beginning around eight years of life, children in our, eight months of life, children in our society began to express a separation anxiety. Oh no, mom's leaving and they start crying. Well, it turns out that separation anxiety differs dramatically around the world. In some cultures, it appears to be virtually absent. In cultures where children have lots of different caregivers, so they're cared for by mom and grandma, and their aunts and their sisters and their nieces, lots of different people handling them, they don't seem to express separation anxiety as much. Some people have postulated it's because they're not really sure who the primary caretaker is, who they need to be worried about. Others suggest that it's a network of assurances that mean any one person is not that important. In any case, we see the way in which children are cared for can affect fundamental aspects of psychological development. When we look cross-culturally at socialization, one of the things that stands out is that the organization of work is one of the most important things in terms of childhood development. And that within that context, mother's activities are some of the most important influences. Why mother's activities? Well, in particular, because in most cultures, mothers work outside the home. So how are children cared for? Well, in some cases, mother carries them to the field, tied to her back. In other cases, they're left with siblings. In some cases, they're left alone. And some studies have pointed out the personality developmental consequences of that quote-unquote abandonment. In our society, we have the child care center. And you can tell in first grade which kids have been in child care and which ones haven't. 
You know, the ones that have been in childcare are in charge. They're doing their thing. They got their peer group. They're confident. They're in their element. The kid that's going to school for the first time is timid and scared and crying. Makes a big difference whether or not you go to childcare infant toddler as you develop. You develop peer orientations and social skills much more rapidly and you begin to attenuate the separation anxiety from your mother. So today we can see that childcare centers are one of the ways in which mother's work has altered some of the traditional ways in which children are reared with clear and well-recognized consequences for childhood personality. In addition to the influences that we get from our family and our community, in most cultures there is some form of secondary socialization where we are socialized by influences outside of our family and community setting. In the U.S., this is primarily focused in terms of schooling and formal education. Within that context, we often view schooling as being the context within which we learn the facts, the knowledge, the skills that we need in order to be effective in life. This is what we would call instrumental education. You learn tools that will allow you to get ahead. Most people who study the educational process suggest that other things are at least as important, if not more important, in terms of what's happening in the school setting. For instance, what we would call affiliative functions. How do you get along with other people? You may have seen a handout that said to the effect, everything that I ever needed to know about getting along with other people I learned on the playground, or I learned in kindergarten. A recognition that fundamental social skills are developed in school settings. We learn how to get along with others. We also, in the context of schools, learn what can be viewed as a figurative function of education. How to think about the world, an ideology. For instance, an ideology that says school is important. School is part of who you are. And your success in school will be a measure of your success in life. Few people who go to school have the belief that this is a total waste of time. I wouldn't be here, you know, if I didn't have to. Well, maybe they do in K through 12. But by the time you get to college, you believe that this is going to get you somewhere in life. Whether or not it makes a big difference in how you end up functioning in life, you believe that. Some areas it's far more important than others. And of course, one of the other things that happens as a consequence of that ideology is that we are integrated into a certain way of believing about the world and thinking about the world. For instance, if I tell you that a doctor who requires you know, 30 years of education gets paid $200,000 a year, but a ditch digger who dropped out of high school and doesn't have to have any kind of educational certificate at all only gets paid $15,000 a year, you might think it's a big gap, but you're likely to say, well, it's fair. This guy went to school for 30 years. You've been integrated into the social order. You come to think about the world in a certain way as a consequence of your education. So while we often focus on the instrumental aspects of education, sociologists of education would emphasize that these other functions are probably at least as important, if not more important. For instance, few of you would feel that it was fair that if you were to apply for a job and someone who had a D minus average and no work experience got the same salary as you when you had an A plus GPA, you wouldn't think that's fair. You have bought into a system that says education is part of validating our worth in life. Initiation rights are a form of secondary socialization in which what happens to us in childhood may be fundamentally changed in adulthood. Severe male initiations are noted in societies around the world. Some of these are grotesquely inhuman in one sense. One of the typical patterns is that all the boys are rounded up. Everybody between 8 and 14 years old is rounded up by the adult men and told, you're going off to the forest to meet the ancestors, and you may die. And when the little boys leave, they know that they're never going back to live in their mother's house again, and that they may die out in the jungle. And what happens out there often involves severe food and water deprivation, feeding them toxic substances and hallucinogenic drugs, and normally culminated in a ceremony in which they are circumcised or sub-incised. And sub-incision 
can involve splitting open the penis, from the base of the penis all the way through the meatus, the head of the penis, opening up the urinary tract as one long open area. And they're often told, if you cry, we kill you. Now, anthropologists like to make sense of what people do, and activities like this challenge us. And this is where the psychocultural model becomes a useful framework for trying to make sense of why specific cultures might, in that sense, torture their little kids. We find that these kinds of initiation rites are associated with a particular environment, the rainforest, whether it's in Africa or in South America or in Southeast Asia, and that in these environments there's protein deficiency because the tubers that grow well in this area don't have high protein content and things like wheats don't grow well when there's heavy rain. The cultural system apparently has adapted to this by prolonged breastfeeding. Children are typically breastfed for three to five years. It gives them protein. You want to breastfeed a child to make sure it gets enough protein. You better make sure mom doesn't get pregnant again. Hence, a postpartum sexual taboo. Women can't have sex with their husbands for two or three or four years after birth. Men manage to deal with this because these are typically societies that are polygamous. So he's got another wife to relate to. But he's not even around her. Mother and children live together, sleep together in great intimacy. Husbands don't live with their wives. They often live in a men's hut where all the men of a initiation group live together throughout their lives. They may go to their wives' huts to eat, but they don't typically spend the night there. So in this sense, we can see that this child-rearing environment produces intense child-mother attachment and a mother identification, a female identification, because this is the powerful, influential individual in your environment. Dad's basically not around to be a model. It's okay that little girls grow up wanting to be like mommy, but if little boys grow up wanting to be like mommy, this becomes a problem when it's time for them to become adults. What do you do? You put them through an initiation rite that, in essence, kills off the childhood personality. How? By basically putting children through these extremely torturous and painful circumstances, it produces a psychological transformation. One of those transformations is that now you want to be like these people that are abusing you. Part of our psychology. But if we were like them, they wouldn't be doing this to us. So the initiation breaks the relationship between son and mother, introduces the child to adult society, often very brutally, where each man may humiliate the child. In one culture that I've read about, each man takes each initiate, grabs him by the back of his hair, and rubs the kid's butt in his face. You are basically this low to me. But now at least you know where you stand in adult society. You're at the bottom. And when the next group comes along, you'll do that to them and you'll put them at the bottom, or at your bottom, literally. And the hierarchy in society among male age grades is established. So this socialization then creates a child peer group that replicates the patterns of their fathers, hanging out together, more concerned with their male-male relations than they are with relationships to females. Female initiation occurs in some societies. It tends to be more of a rare occurrence. What we call clitorectomy or infibulation is not initiation. That reflects a concern with paternity and control of female sexuality. Where we find female initiation, it's not typically a very painful experience. It tends to be associated with societies that have matrilocal residents, where a little girl, when she gets married, doesn't go to her husband's home. She stays with her mom. So how does she know that she's an adult now? Well, the initiations help signal that transition, signal that new developmental phase. It may also be associated with societies that have difficult adult transitions for females, and the initiation may be focused more on allowing her to understand how to deal with some of the challenges that she will face. In some cases, it involves sexual education. But what is noted cross-culturally is that male initiation is more important than female initiation. And this reflects, I think, the extent to which males become primarily responsible for relations in the broader society. They need to be integrated with other males. Females can function effectively in societies 
in terms of a domestic role that just involves the household. They don't need to be integrated into networks of other females. So this may in part re reflect why we see such dramatic differences. Of course, what this reflects is the idea that the personality that we find in any culture is really a reflection of the influences of the primary culture and the expressive culture. Primary institutions, child rearing, work, family life, involve important shapings of the individual. Secondary institutions like religious beliefs and myths are also important input. The anthropological model has been one in which we see these personality dynamics of a culture. The group personality, if you will, is really being a mediating uh, entity between the formative experiences of life and the ideals that are provided for us in secondary culture. So it's both kind of a bottom-up set of influences from work and family and broader social institutions, and then a top-down set of influences, ideals that come from our religious system, our beliefs, and our culture that say, this is the way that you should behave in order to be successful. So in a very real sense, expressive culture, art, mythology, religion, drama, music, are a kind of reflection of the personality dynamics of the culture. They provide a set of ideals for how humans should behave. Sometimes in folklore and mythology, sometimes more explicitly in religious systems and the commandments and the thou shalt nots and the models that one has of you know, being a, a good Christian or a good Jew or a good Muslim that say, this is the way to be an adult in this society. Within this context, our inherent capacities to understand human psychology get developed. We all, as human beings, have the capacity to represent ourselves in the social context. We're concerned with how other humans view us. We have a sense of the other, what the sociologists call the generalized other, that we use as a framework for understanding what it is that we're supposed to model ourselves on. And through our own inherent capacities to experience emotions, and drives, and feelings, and attachments, we find within the context of our broader cultural system information that tells us how we should view our emotions. Is anger good or bad? Should grief be turned inward or outward in rage? Should we take an insult as something that we accept as our appropriate subordinate role or a a front to our dignity that must be in some way avenged. So anthropologists have discussed these in a variety of traditions known as the culture and personality traditions. In the text you'll hear about the configurations of culture approaches of the early anthropologists who talked about the basic personality structures of people in a cultural group. The notion that everybody had the same basic underlying influences from the primary institutions. Uh, there's also a whole set of Approaches called the modal personality that's concerned with what's typical within a cultural group. While these are sort of simplistic notions that are designed to make the idea of culture and personality relations more intelligible, they're too simplistic. We know that within any given culture, there can be different influences from the primary structures. There may be a number of different modes, and no culture are males and females uh, intended to follow the same ideals. These ideas are nonetheless useful in the context of understanding national differences, the personality of a nation. And while these are often discounted in anthropology today as once again a failure to recognize intracultural variation, they are increasingly used in business and in cross-cultural relations to provide an orientation to what are the dominant patterns of self-presentation of culture and personality relations in other societies. If we're going to be effective, however, we have to recognize that there is not a single kind of person in another culture. That in essence, there are a variety of sources of variation within each cultural group. We don't all have the same work experiences, the same economic resources, the same family structure, the same kinds of relationships with our siblings and our peers. Even in a given cultural group, there may be a multiplicity of personality types. Within any given culture, there are a variety of different statuses, positions. All have mother and father. But what about elder brother or fourth cousins? Our culture don't consider those people very important. 
So we have to recognize that not only are there different positions or statuses, there's also different roles. What it means to be a good mother in one culture differs with another culture. What it means to be a obedient son in one culture differs with that of another. So the actual expectations associated with our statuses can also differ. So while culture is an important tool for understanding others, it's not sufficient if we impose culture as a stereotype. We have to recognize that within any given culture, there are a variety of sources of intracultural or internal cultural variation. That doesn't necessarily mean that ideas of a basic personality structure are irrelevant, but it does imply that they may be inadequate for representing the variation we find within a group. Today, these ideas may be manifested in concerns about ethnicity. Indeed, we can see ethnicity as a kind of cultural psychology in which the way in which we understand our own personalities, our ideals, our values, the ideal self, is a function of a specific cultural group. We find in different cultures, different national ideals about what it means to be a good Japanese citizen or a good American citizen or a good German citizen. And while there may be important variations within that, cultures often emphasize exactly what anthropologists discussed 80 years ago as modal patterns of the personality. Ethnicity, however, is a little more complex than these early models. We understand ethnicity is not merely a reflection of the personality produced within a given culture, but rather a cultural personality that not only reflects the included other people that we identify with, but does so in a way that explicitly contrasts with others that are not part of the self. So to go back to our earlier terminology of culture versus society, ethnicity is an identity that is on one hand oriented to our own cultural group and at the same time contrastive with others who are not ourselves, whether it's the society at large, white society for instance for African Americans, or whether it may be contrasted with other ethnic groups in society where there's no clearly dominant group Ethnicity is a sense of self that is not only informed by the ideals of our culture, what is us, but in some important ways delimited, defined by them, who we are not. So the models that anthropology has provided for understanding these culture and personality relations can also be important sources of understanding ethnicity. And indeed, I have used the psychocultural model as a primary tool for thinking about the way in which diverse influences within a cultural system produce the commonalities within a given ethnic group in society and the contrastive differences that they experience with respect to others. So in summary, personality and culture are intimately interdependent. In a very real sense, one doesn't exist without the other. The cultural system has profound effects upon the self and how we identify ourselves as human beings and in relationship to others. And these ideas have important applications from educational psychology, cross-cultural psychology, social work, international business, etc. In essence, what the world has come to recognize is different strokes for different folks. Some of the basic rules of life have to do with understanding differences and how to deal with them. And anthropology provides some frameworks for understanding how those are produced and how they can be adapted to in the context of intercultural relations.